Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, welcome, everyone. And if you were listening to that introduction, you heard Thursdays at 3 p.m., which it is not Thursday at 3 p.m. It's Thursday at 4 p.m. here on a brisk day in September here at Southern Utah University. But we could not pass up an opportunity to speak with the guests that we have on campus today. Uh, It has been such an honor uh, to have Dr. Sarah Lewis on campus today and then here in the studio right now. I mean, the words that I heard from her talk today, people were saying life-changing, inspiring. I mean, just so, so, so very much. So please welcome Dr. Sarah Lewis. Thank you so much for your time. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that warm welcome. It's really a pleasure. We've just been enjoying so much. We've been, uh, some of our classes have been reading your book, The Rise, and we have a book club discussion set up next week. Um, And some of those students were in the the hall today, and then... And of course, we've been um, celebrating uh, imagery and celebrating place. And so we're just going to continue the conversation a little bit today and go from there. Let's do it. I mentioned to you that I've been so touched by the story of your grandfather, which um, mm-hmm. I know you've mentioned in your TED Talks, and it's, of course, in your book and mm-hmm. in your writings. And mm-hmm. that has been, um, it's just touching on so many levels. Of course, his story and the incident that, mm-hmm. that you mentioned and, and, and talked mm-hmm. about today, which um, students can, and you can read about in the book and, and hear about, but also mm-hmm. his inspiration that he has been to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first question, or topic is I'd love to hear more about that inspiration and how he maybe continues to inspire him. It seems like his presence is still very much a part of your life. Mm, Yes, yes. So I had an experience that probably a ton of our our listeners have had, um, something that happens in your life that maybe at the time you don't realize is as important as it is. For me, when I was a sophomore in college, um, I learned that my grandfather had this story that has really stayed in my memory ever since. He was in high school in the 11th grade in New York City, public high school. And he was asking the teacher just a basic question. He wanted to know why the history books didn't represent the world in the diverse representation that we know that it has. And he was just, he was expelled for his impertinence and not accepting the history teacher's answer, which was that African Americans in particular had done nothing to merit inclusion. Yeah. And his pride was so wounded, he never went back to school, and he never got that high school degree. But he became an artist. And that extraordinary work he created made me wonder about whether or not we fully explored the connection between art and justice. Yeah. In part because of the type of work he was creating, and because of the energy that I then understood was really behind it. You wow. know, His name is... Shadrach Emmanuel Lee. And my 
initials, S-E-L, are meant to honor him, but my name is far less dramatic and cool. But it's so, so elegant and beautiful. So. <laughs> You're kind. Well, they, my parents did okay with my name, I think. <laughs> but he, he still inspires me to this day. Absolutely. And do you, do you, I, I know in the last talk at, 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 the, at our museum, you talked a little bit about your spirituality. I mean, it does, do you still feel that you connect? Is he a, a presence that you mm-hmm. sort of feel? Yeah. I mean, do you mm-hmm. imagine him? I mean, how, yeah. how does it manifest itself for you now, that inspiration? Yeah. Um, I am deeply spiritual and I don't, feel that uh, those you know who who pass have left us mm-hmm. right so i definitely feel his presence there's really not a day that goes by when i'm especially when i'm teaching uh in which i don't consider the fact that it's just two generations later from that moment that my grandfather had in 1926 where i'm a professor at harvard teaching the topics that he really was condemned for asking about right. and so i I sense his support with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sense his encouragement. And I, I love the final like line or sort of sentence he said about me as he was about to pass. My mother showed him one of my paintings. I wanted to be an artist when I was much younger. And he looked at it and he said, I think she's got it. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's so, amazing. Yeah. That's Sweet. really a beautiful, uh, a beautiful insight. And I think she's got it in so many ways. I mean, in fact, this just came up at the lunch table. We were talking about musicians yeah. and we were talking about how interacting and collaborating and how yeah. when you know someone's got it. So getting it yeah. can occur on so many different levels. That's right. You know? And so that's yes. just a beautiful like, kind of coming together. Yeah. And so... Um, I'm curious about the art aspect of it because he was a painter and yeah. you learned from him. And I know yeah. you at one time wanted to be a painter. And I think yeah. I heard perhaps on a radio show or, or a talk show that you said, even still you sort of, <laughs> do, do you paint now? Is that a, a, something that you uh, go to for inspiration? Yeah. So, you know, I'm on sabbatical right now. So on any given day, I'm likely to be pursuing some hidden interest. <laughs> But I do still uh, want to create in different ways. I see my writing very much as the creative outlets of the rise, certainly constituted a real creative act for me. And I, I so I love my work in that sense, but I still want to create images. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that it will be in the context of painting. I think it might be in, in the realm of photography. Well, that's what I was going to ask because yeah. so much of your study has mm-hmm. has. Um, uh, been around photography yeah. and and some of your curate, yeah. curating activities have been around photography mm-hmm. and is that something that you have a background in or were just drawn to because mm. of the historical context or yeah it's a great question um the answer is really both i i did study photography i wanted i chose uh, don't try this at home folks but i chose my graduate school based upon the fact that there was a dark room <laughs> Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. I went I went to Oxford for grad school, and I just chose where I live based upon the fact that I'd be next to a dark room. My thinking was it's really rainy in the UK all the time, so I wanted to have like a place to go. And I so I learned. I trained myself. But then I became more interested in the history of photographs and what they did, how they moved us, how they shifted our sense of ourselves. So I fell into that rabbit hole. That's great. Yeah. And um, sort of along those lines, another figure that is um, quite prominent in your work is Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. And, and at what point, where did that come into your life? How did yeah. you uh, 
come to find mm-hmm. I mean this sort of treasure trove of his artistic concept and yes. um, and and his in his connection with photography and yeah. at what point did he come into your life yeah another great question I was in graduate school, my first or second year online doing some research, and I just stumbled across this speech. And it was uh, digitized, and it's in the Library of Congress's collection, so I could look at the handwritten speech from the comfort of my home. And I was stunned. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It took some time to read it. You know, yeah, right. read, yeah, it's in his own hand. It's difficult. And I've stumbled upon it before the books came out that transcribed the speeches. So oh. I didn't have the benefit of looking at that text. And my colleagues, John Stauffer and Henry Louis Gates and others have done great work on Douglas as well. But I mentioned that uh, that archival find in part because I want to make sure people know that the Library of Congress and other places contain unspeakable treasures. There are still gold mines to discover. Many of them are digitized. So you, from the comfort of your place in Utah, you can be exploring these things. I, uh, that sounds a lot like uh, I'm a musician, and, and when we go to um, the original editions of Bach yeah. or Beethoven, mm-hmm. they're so much different than, yes. than the sort of modern translations, if yep. you will. So, yep. Yep. so you were reading it from his own hand, mm-hmm. and then that must have just led you down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Yes. Um, how, uh, I know that you continue to talk a lot about him. How do you think he would see uh, to with all of your research on him, how mm-hmm. do you think he would view mm-hmm. our connection to images today, visual mm-hmm. culture? Do you think he would be um, it, happy about it, or would he say we? I mean, do you have any perspectives of? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know so much about mm-hmm. how he came and to find these things. Yes. Well, he needs to be reframed as as a sort of art historian. The depth of which he explored the topic is that profound. He was living in an, an age that's analogous to our own. He'd have a lot to say. It was the birth of photography when he was writing this speech. We're in a moment in which we are a new sort of facing kind of image glut in the yeah. way that he did. They say that every three minutes, well, they, they Nicholas Mirzoff says, every three minutes we take as many images as were made the entire 19th century. Yeah, right. Right? It's a huge it's, it's amount. Amazing. So he would be not surprised that we are reading the world through pictures. Uh, he would, I think, be encouraged by the moments of, of inspiration that we derive from, say, an image that's on the cover of Time or anywhere else that makes us either see things anew or take action. Um, but I think he w- he might wonder why we're not doing more as a result of some of the images that we're seeing, yeah. right? I didn't realize the parallel between his time yes. and ours. I think that's really fascinating to, to think about that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, imagine a world in which there were no photographs, and then all of a sudden, as he writes in this, his speech, you can't go into someone's house without being having images pushed on you and you know, yeah. forced to contend with them. It was a seismic shift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to kind of follow that thread a little bit further in into today's world, um, you know, in your position as a historian and, and uh, do you have any recommendations mm. that that you wish that people would, to, would follow? Maybe perhaps advertisers, or what do you uh-huh. think can can help us right now to to mm. to to be better with our connection to images and our mm-hmm. our placement of images and our um, mm-hmm. sort of integrity, I guess, mm-hmm. with regard to images? Yes. 
What I would hope people would focus on more is the way in which images create narratives that can ignite the imagination and can also really denigrate uh, Mm -hmm. those in society. They have incredible power today. And that's something that marketers, advertisers shouldn't take lightly. Right. Um, you can think about the, the negative examples. I don't like to dwell on the negative. Just to give you an example, there are tons of ads by Pepsi with uh, Kendall Kardashian, is right. that right? Or Ken, Ken, one Kendall of, Jenner. One of those yeah. cases. Yeah, sorry, I'm not really up on the Kardashians. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then H&M, where they had to yank an image of a young black boy in this sort of T-shirt that was positioning him as a monkey in the jungle. There are all of these examples of marketers not seeing the ways in which narratives are both layered onto pictures Mm -hmm. and have been historically, which is how stereotypes get created, and how we can use images to better um, enlarge our notion and of who we need to honor in society. Mm -hmm. So it's work that I think about a lot in my classroom. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching students Many of whom I know are not going to be art historians. I didn't think I was going to be an art historian right. when I was a student. And I, in some ways, feel as if I'm that plus lots yeah. of other things. Yeah. And so I hope, though, that um, the students are able to really take away that we're living in a very visually literate society mm-hmm. without fully acknowledging that that's the case. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you're looking at your phone while you're listening right now, you're reading the world through pictures, probably, right? right? right. You're probably not reading a whole article. You're probably looking past some images about something. And so journalists, I think, are also embedding their stories in these pictures as much as marketers are. And we need to get clear about how we're continuing past narratives that we'd like to eliminate and how we can inaugurate new ones. Do you think that that responsibility lies with advertisers, journalists, Mm. artists, Mm. or is it something that you think everyone needs to uh, think about, acknowledge, mm-hmm. or do we need these industries to lead us? It's a, it's a great point. I don't think that the industry leadership model is the answer. Right. <laughs> uh, I've actually, as much as I could, put out an open call to Pepsi and whomever else. I would be happy to have them come to class. They're not coming to my class. I mean, <laughs> I mean you know. Mm, let's I, think about that. Yeah, what are the odds? <laughs> so we could wait, but there, that's not that's not the way the capitalism works. Um the other reason why I don't think the industry leadership models the answer is because we have decentralized how images are put out today. Social media has made an individual capable of being their own best marketer. Right, right. So if you curate your Instagram page, you're looking at the way in which people are reading images. You're mindful of what's going to create more followers for your page. You know, same with right. Twitter, same with everything else. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's all of us. <laughs> and do, do you, when we, uh, at, when we, um, incorporate our own social media. Yeah. Uh, do you have any recommendations for the individual that, yeah. that is um, mm-hmm. the small business, the this, the that? Mm-hmm. How, how can we be more intuitive, more sensitive, more, mm-hmm. ha- you know, have more integrity? You know, I, I, I think that image that I showed earlier today is a good example. Um, uh, just to answer your question. What images would inspire you to be your best self? Right. I love that. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. What images would let you live out a dream? What would squelch that dream? Those are the kind of filters that I use when I'm thinking about what to right. put out in, in public. That image I showed earlier of Pete Souza um, showing what was happening in the White House on this given day when a young boy wanted to know if his hair texture really did match that of the president's. And he had 
the great fortune of having President Obama lean down to let him touch his head. It's a stunning image. And, and I, why is it a stunning image? Well, because you see and can imagine his world opening up because of the kind of image in front of him, right? Yeah. That let his dream be possible. That picture is such a treasure. And I mean, Pete Sousa's work is is just phenomenal. There's oh, yeah. so many great things. But that yeah. particular moment, and I think that that photo is one of his favorites. I think he has commented in pot, in some radio shows yeah. that it's one of his favorite moments as well. Oh, right. So. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. It's extraordinary. Well, I have a couple of uh, little musical moments um, today, and I, I tried to choose things that I thought might be um, uh interesting we have um some some jazz uh and i know you're a big fan and and we were playing some winton marsalis earlier um but this particular song is when it's sleepy time down south and it's from standard time volume two uh in intimacy calling and um it's marcus roberts on piano and jeff tain watts joining him on bass and so we'll have a listen to that here on the apex hour ksuu thunder 91.1 
Okay, well, we are back here on the Apex Hour. Um, this is Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That was Wynton Marcellus, When It's Sleepy Time Down South. The album is called Standard Time, Volume 2, Intimacy Calling. Just a beautiful, beautiful uh, collection of numbers and a great great, great band. I'm joined in the studio with our guest who's been on campus uh, for the Tanner Center lecture, and her name is Dr. Sarah Lewis. Welcome back. Thank you. Um, In this uh, break, I'd love to get into the creative process, into your creative Mm -hmm. process, and and about writing. And I'd I'd love to know a little bit also about about your process of of curating. Um, I I think a lot of people are um, mystified by what the role of a curator is. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you perceive that role? Because I imagine it's probably different for people uh, and and what Mm -hmm. it's like and how how you go about the process of curating a show or or something like that. Yeah. You know, I actually think uh, that is true that the curatorial process can seem like a mystery, but I often find that with at least my students, they think they know what it is oh. because they're curating so much of their lives online in any case. Right. And at least on the East Coast, people call themselves curators without being a curator at a museum at all. They just, you know, who knows what they're curating, but they're editing, so they call themselves curators. The, the term curator comes from the Latin curare, to care for. And that's really what the job is about, to care for a collection, to care for. I never for. thought of that. That's beautiful. I never really put that together, of course. And it's as simple as that, really, at the heart of it all. So the public sees one percentage of the process, which is to put out a show. But the, and we can talk about what work that requires, but the lion's share of the work is um, conceptual, administrative. You're doing a lot of work to make sure that the, if you're at a museum, that the museum has the collection that it should regarding, say, modern art, contemporary art. You're in artist studios. You're seeing what work is ready to be presented in a museum context. Oh, yeah, tons of artist visits, which is my favorite part. And do you have – how do you – I imagine you're just constantly finding new artists. I mean, do you have a a massive – file? How do you even organize <laughs> yeah. that information? Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, yeah, now you're putting me to shame. I should have some great organizational system for how I sort through the various artists. But, you know, part of the work is to ensure that you're seeing work that an artist is creating that's really ready for public consumption. And that's actually a smaller percentage than the work that you just encounter. Um, I'm fortunate to work between Boston and New York, and so I'm always around a lot of the artists who I want to get to know, or I fly to the West Coast or to Utah, other places, <laughs> to get to know other artists. Um, I do have some good electronic files, but no great system. Yeah. Looking for new systems. Oh, well, that's. <laughs> I mean, that's. I, I'm fascinated by how people do the things they do. You mentioned yeah. a little bit about the actual putting on of the show yep. and the, some of the complexities of that. Could you share a little bit about that yeah. part of the process? Yeah. So, an exhibition that you see in a museum is often trying to tell um, a story about an artist's life, and oftentimes that story sort of revolves around a central question. You know, what are we failing to see? Oh, okay. What are we failing to see about this artist's body of work? What needs to be put front and center that isn't already? Is that a conversation that you have with them or you, you sort of determine from your end? Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, is there a mm-hmm. lot of consultation in, in that aspect of it? <laughs> yeah, consultation sometimes at your own peril. Not, not just kidding. But, yeah, right. but sometimes it's, it's true. I mean, 
curators, the greats, the visionary curators really do have a sense of what they like to put forward, what story they think should be told. But it is in conversation, not just with the artists at the time of the show, but typically over the course of their career, if they've been in the field for a while. Um, I worked on the Elizabeth Murray retrospective at MoMA, and she passed away shortly after that show. Uh, the curator, the main one was Robert Storr, and he had a sense of how he wanted to display her decades of work. He talked to her about a few things. Uh, it was mainly the vetoes that I remember, the, you know, the times where she really didn't want something to, to go onto the wall. So it can be collaborative, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can. And uh, also, d- with the curating process, uh, do you um, uh, feel that... Uh, a great sense of satisfaction uh, when it's complete or do you feel that you've that the story is almost just beginning in a way Mm. by getting the art out there at the proper Mm. time it's Mm -hmm. a little bit related to finding that magic moment as you said when the art is ready yes is it do you feel that it is it existence that completes or is it just the beginning? Or I don't know if that even made sense. It does. It does. It just depends on the type of show it is. You know, I just curated a show entitled Vision and Justice at the Harvard Art Museums. And that was a show with many artists' work um, from Glenn Liga and Kara Walker, historical images of the civil rights movement. And that was meant to catalyze discussion. So I didn't want it to be at an end point. I uh-huh. wanted it to continue. Um, and a retrospective like that of Elizabeth Murray's at MoMA, that's, that's something else. It's meant to really mark the moment. It's re- meant to really honor her and her body of work. So they serve different functions. I think that's amazing. I hadn't really thought of it from that. In a way, you, you sort of are a photographer because mm. with, a, with a curated exhibition or show, you're almost – taking a, a snapshot in time of what you're trying, you're composing what you're trying to achieve. And yes. sometimes it's a retrospective, as you said, and sometimes yes. it's a point that a conversation launches from. That's really beautiful. Mm, I hadn't thought of that either. That's, that's a beautiful <laughs> way to book it. I'd love to take just a moment or two on on your own writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, yeah. many of the students who are who listen to the show are are perhaps aspiring writers and uh and i'm interested in in your process in particular as it relates to that privacy el- uh, realm that we had mm-hmm. talked about and i know you, you talk about private domains um mm-hmm. the and this is uh from one of your writing about the time that we honor the stage at which these private domains are as important as networking and putting your work out there uh and private domains permit the bravery required for decision making in mm-hmm. art and creativity mm-hmm. how does that play out for you yeah. uh in in your process this is very important so for all those aspiring writers the most difficult part and the most rewarding part of the process for me is knowing when your work is ready to be brought to light and discerning that getting clear about that and trusting your decision about that the creative process is very much organic. It's, and in the same way in which, you know, life takes form first as an embryo, something that needs to be protected, so too does creative work. I don't think, um, so premature critique can really damage a creative process. I, I had the, um, experience of showing one of my chapters just far too early to my editor and, it needed to be critiqued. It was raw. It was really a draft. But I, I'm also a tough critic on myself. So I really do know when it's written. I now know that I know that. About, <laughs> that that's my 
a gift, I guess. But the critique that I received from him set me back months. I didn't touch that draft for a long time. And it, it, it showed me the importance of this kind of a paradox about the creative process. Albert Einstein had this term, and, and you can consider, I think, very much the, the arts as connected to the sciences and that both are experimenting with new ideas. They're both creative in different ways. And he had this term for his, his lab, his, his office. He called it a worldly cloister. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and that really gets at it. You have to be able to maintain your own kind of solitude or, and I often feel as if you're really co-creating when you're creating, you're kind of letting yourself be a vessel for something coming through you. So however you define that for yourself, but when, when it's then right, that's when it's time to open the door, not before. Yeah. So that's when it's time to let it become worldly. So when I say, uh, this is very important, it's because I think today a lot of students or a lot of anyone wants to show their work. They, they want, want to, to show everything all yeah, the time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We want to get it out there. But just only when it's the right time, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. So That's a, a really fascinating part of the process. And it relates a little bit uh, to some of the other topics in The Rise yep. about hard work and refinement and mm-hmm. success yep. and mastery. And yeah. um, In your early stages, and, and of course, share as much or as little of, as you want of the creative process, are you more improvisatory? I'm thinking, um, mm-hmm. you know, of the, the jazz musicians who are making quick decisions all the time on mm-hmm. the fly yes. and, and, and don't have that same refinement process in, in live music. Yes. Does your early process tend to be a little more improvisatory or do you take a more sort of methodic approach from mm-hmm. the get-go? Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I am improvisatory at the start. Even in constructing the lecture for today, there's a level of intuition yeah. that I, I use that, and I think intuition is our highest form of intelligence in many ways. When you're centered, when you're grounded, yeah. you know. So I listen to that, that small voice that you have to stay in touch with, uh, especially in the early stages. And then I write so many drafts of every chapter, of every almost paragraph. Um, that's when I refine once I've let myself be, be free to explore the new idea. I love that. And I, I love that you mentioned uh, intuition. I think mm-hmm. that um, that's a whole nother, I, I would love to delve into that, you know, more yeah. for for its place in not just the creative process, but mm-hmm. also in hard work, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, is that yeah. something that you feel that you cultivated that, mm-hmm. that intuition? Or do you feel that you grew into that? Or mm-hmm. how did that kind of come to be centered do do you have any thoughts on that do you know um i do i think the answer is both i um it was we all have are born with instinct you know i'm i'm always marveling when i look yeah thanks to instagram and whatnot at these images of like you know baby animal anything (laughs) and they're able to know who they are from the moment they're here Mm -hmm. it's the same with us to a certain degree but but we have a different kind of struggle i think ours is to figure out what type of human we are you know are we are we meant to be an incredible musician our is our skill to do x y or z and how do you listen to that voice that gives you just a little bit of a nudge to go in one direction or the other you can only do that when you get Again, it's the paradox, very still, yeah. you know, very quiet. 
not to say to shut your friends out. That's not what we're talking about. It's just a matter of getting still within yourself. Which is such a challenge in today's world, I mm-hmm. think, for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, when you when you talk with your students, um, is this a, a is that finding stillness? Is that something that comes uh, up? And mm-hmm. and is is there any advice that you may have mm-hmm. for for college students, young people, to cultivate that? Yes. Well. My advice for my students and for myself is to cultivate a practice of mindfulness and, and oftentimes that the easiest way to do it is through meditation. Mm. Ironically enough, I didn't meditate today. I meditate almost every day. <laughs> oh, that's just, interesting. I didn't have enough time this uh-huh. morning, but, um, the, that practice, 15 minutes is really all it takes, um, is a constant pursuit, which yeah. I also talk about that in the rise. Right. I mean, yes. So cultivating your connection is an ongoing process and meditation is, is such an unusual kind of practice because you never feel as if you're doing it right. Right. But that's, that's it. It's the constant attempt, you know, that gets you, um, to get ever more connected Uh to that, that inner voice. I completely 100% agree. And yeah. I'm a big fan of yoga. Oh, yeah. Uh, which yeah. has some similar things, you mm-hmm. know, this, this idea that, that it's not about, doing this right or yeah. that right or yeah. stretching this far or this kind of thing. It's about the process and what comes up in yourself. And it, of course, there's meditation involved yeah, in that absolutely. as well. So I'm I'm thrilled that that's something yeah. that you also favor and champion. Absolutely. So. Yeah. Well, we have another song to play. And I, you may have said that you had a story about the, about this artist. I, I The reason I chose this, this um, particular song is the artist Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And I know that mm-hmm. you have had a chance to interact with her and yeah. and there's some photo of you of you two together in your blog and um what was that like is there a story there yeah so i met joni mitchell out in la a few years ago at the hammer museum and i was there to honor this great painter mark bradford mm. she was being honored and i think um cameron crow was delivering oh, wow. her remarks and she and i were seated next to each other at a dinner at that dinner and someone wanted to take our photograph so I asked them to take one on my phone too as so we were talking we take the photograph and she looks at it she said I, I want to make sure I, we, we like it <laughs> she has to see my phone and she said oh no we don't we don't look great at all but <laughs> take it again <laughs> took it again so that's the one that's on my Instagram that's so, great curating that's, images that's right that's exactly <laughs> well right. this song is called and I chose this title because this song is called This Place and we've been talking a lot about place and um, and its uh, mm. relevance to, to culture and society and where we are and so we'll have you have a listen to This Place um, off the album of Shine by Joni Mitchell and you are listening to the Apex Hour KSUU Thunder 91.1 Sparkled on the ocean Eagle at the top of a tree Those crazy crows Always making a commotion this land is home to me I was talking to my neighbor He said When I get to heaven If it's not like this I'll just hop a cloud And I'm coming right back down here Back to 
this heavenly place You see those lovely hills They won't be there for long They're gonna tear them down And sell them to California Here come the toxic spills Miners poking all around When this place looks like a moonscape Don't say it in one That was one of our great masters that you were listening to, uh, Joni Mitchell. We were just talking about that great energy that you get from her music and her lyrics and her sound and her vibe. I mean, just such great presence. That song was This Place off the album Shine um, by Joni Mitchell. Uh, you're back with the Apex Hour for our last few minutes. And I am in the studio with Dr. Sarah Lewis, who I just could talk to for hours and hours oh. and hours. Uh, I just just really appreciate uh, your your thought and your mind and and just your your care for your topics and so thank you so much for everything that you've shared with the students today. Well, I appreciate that. It's a pleasure talking to you. My last couple of questions are are sort of our things that we tend to 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 want to know from guests, and the uh -huh. first is um, which is so important for our students, but really for anybody, but. Is there anything that you really wish you had known in college, you know, mm -hmm. that oh, I wish somebody had told me that I would, uh, and, mm -hmm. and of course it turns into great advice for our, for our students yeah. now. 
So many things. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think in t- for today's students, you, I might be focused more on what people thought of me than I was back then. I think there are so many ways in which we're putting out images of ourselves and things that make that the case. So I would want to make sure my younger self knew that, as a friend of mine once said to me, what or maybe it's what Michelle Obama once said to all of us. Oh, wow. That, that, <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that what people think of me is none of my business. Oh, wow. I think that's very important. That's to, powerful. Yeah. Let, just let that take root in yourself. That's what I would hope for the college students on this campus. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to keep that as a touchstone for myself, too. <laughs> I try to, too. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Yeah. And then the last thing that we like to ask is sort of our fun little um, closing thing. And that's yeah. what's turning you on this week. And of course, it could be uh, anything. It could be some people have had it be a TV show or some people uh-huh. have had it be a music <laughs> album or a book. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Sarah Lewis, what yes. is turning you on right now? Oh, gosh, you say Dr. Sarah Lewis. So now I need to give you an erudite answer. No, no. In fact, going, if, I, if you want to know, it. last week was all about a Bravo TV show. So Okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to go there too. We'll go very lower brow than all the stuff I've been talking about. Um, well, I, you know, I do a lot of work that brings me, um, that makes me focus on great books. I think Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, if students haven't read that, that's what's turned me on lately. I hope people read that too. But then for breaks, um, I love watching things on like Insecure on HBO. I think oh, that's a good yeah. show. I was really late to the party there. So <laughs> I'm trying to catch up. <laughs> so I think that's great. Um, but things that remind us that we can all create, that all of our narratives are legitimate and should be honored on these platforms that we are, that we have, whether it's HBO, Netflix, or so on. Um, that's what's inspiring me. So I watch those shows with that reminder that our world is enlarging every day. Oh, uh, that's beautiful. So. Well, thank you so much. And uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank, thank you for your time here today. And thank you for everything that you've done for our students. And with that, we will just kind of sign off okay. here. And um, again, we'll be back on the air at our normal time at 3pm. But you have been listening to this is the Apex Hour. And we've had Dr. Stara Lewis. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. (laughs) And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.